Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the first morning service of Saturday the 25th of February 2017, entitled, Having a Heart After the Heart of God. And the Bible reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. Well, amen. Great to be back this morning, is it not? We had a great time last night. I'll be honest with you, those were some of the funniest skits or games I'd ever participated in. And uh, I laughed until my cheeks hurt when I went home last night, but that was a lot of fun. And you guys participated in a wonderful way, and I, uh, I enjoyed it immensely. We didn't get into bed till about 2 o'clock. Anybody get any sleep last night? Anybody get any? Because you guys are looking pretty good if you didn't get a whole lot of sleep. I heard somebody say they got about four hours. That's about what we got. Who got two? Two hours, you got two? Wow, you guys are doing great. Well, I want you to take your Bible and turn to the book of First Samuel chapter number 13. First Samuel chapter number 13. And while you're turning, let me just share something with you. Uh, during the first couple of years that my wife and I were in the ministry, we were in Tampa, Florida, which is a very large city in the state of Florida in the United States of America. And um, I was a youth director there. We had about 125 young people in our youth department, which is basically having your own church, just all teenagers. And I enjoyed it immensely, loved it. Don't necessarily want to go back and do that again because at 57 years of age, I've learned something. The recovery time from doing things with young people, you know, that they want to do and all the activities, Brian, the recovery time is a lot longer now, you know, from all of that than what it used to be. But anyway, we had a, we had a wonderful time in Tampa. And um, early on in our ministry there, there was a young man in our youth department who was the only African-American young man in, um, in our youth group, that we had uh, just him, and that was it. And you could tell when you met Emmanuel, you could tell he was different. I mean, it didn't take long for you to, to, to ascertain that. I don't know what happened. I, I heard a little bit. I never wanted to ask him, didn't want to put him on the spot and embarrass him. So I never really asked him. But something happened uh, in the birthing process that lack of oxygen got to his brain, and so he was not 100% there mentally. But he was one of the finest young men I ever met in my life. In fact, uh, Emmanuel came to me and he said, Mr. Kistler, he said, I'd like, I'd like you to teach me how to preach. Now, we had a Christian school there at our, um, at our, at our, our church. We had about 800 kids in our Christian school. And he said this, and here's the way he quoted it. He said, it says, I will set no wicked thing before my very eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside, it shall not cleave unto me. Now, if you know Psalm 101, verse 3, the word very is not in there. It doesn't say I will set the wicked thing before my very eye. It just says I will set the wicked thing before my eye. But he had the word very for emphasis. I will set the wicked thing before my very eye. I hate the work of them that turn aside, it shall not cleave unto me. I said, man, that is a powerful verse. So I opened my Bible, and so we started preparing a message on the subject of wickedness. And I want you to stay with me. While we're doing that, uh, our dean of women, whose office was next to mine, she walked by, she saw Emmanuel sitting in there, and she just turned the door on and stuck her head in. She said, Emmanuel, what are you and Mr. Kistler doing? And as I'm standing here, here's what he said. He said, Miss Wood, me and Mr. Kistler, we're looking up wicked stuff in the house. <laughs> I said, no, 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 we're not looking up wicked stuff. We're looking up stuff on wickedness. There is a difference. Okay? But Emmanuel, with his limited mentality, could not get that figured out. Emmanuel, though, loved Jesus with all his heart. In fact, we played in American version of football. We had a high school football team. We played American football against other public schools in the Tampa area. If you knew anything about Tampa, 
It is a football haven, American brand football. And uh, Emmanuel was too small to play football on our football team. But the guys in the school loved him. So what they did is they allowed him to be the manager. They called him the football team. And he'd keep water bottles filled with water. And he would, you know, uh, help with taping up ankles or anything like that that needed to be done. And I found out early on that during the football games at halftime, Emmanuel would go into the opposing team's locker room with his hands full of the gospel tracts like we're going to carry into the city center in just a little bit. And he'd pass those gospel tracts out to the unsafe football players from the public schools. And you know those guys would laugh at him and make fun of him, call him a preacher. You know Emmanuel, in one sense, was blessed in that he, he, he had limited mental ability and he didn't know that was supposed to bother him. He just kept on serving Jesus. During one of the games that year, which was about two hours north of the city of Tampa in a little town called Santa Fe, Florida, it was an away game and the guys uh, had gone up and played and after the game was over, they stayed over uh, in a hotel that night and evidently, evidently what some of the guys were doing from what Emmanuel told me was this. He came to my office and he said, uh, Mr. Kistler. And I said, yes, Emmanuel. He said, do you know what some of the boys was doing after midnight in the hotel? I said, no, Emmanuel, I don't know. And here's the way he described it, Brother Brian. He said, they turned on the television and they were watching them R-rated movies. Those R-rated movies. And he said, Mr. Kistler, there's something not right about that, isn't it? I said, well, Emmanuel, there's a whole lot not right about that. Well, at the end of our school year, we always had a a time where we'd all gather in a big auditorium with about all 800 of us and, and if young people could give a testimony praise God for what he'd done in their life over the course of the year. And I knew, I knew Emmanuel. I knew we couldn't get through that testimony time without Emmanuel at some point standing up and giving his testimony. Well, I was in the back, back where Larry is, and I was watching the backs of the heads of all these young people. All of a sudden, I saw this hand go up. It was the only black hand in the entire school, so I knew it belonged to Emmanuel. And the man up front said, yes, Emmanuel, would you like to say something? And he stood up. He said, yes, I would. And he said, I want to thank God for Temple Heights Christian School. And he said, I want to thank God for Mr. Kistler in the preacher's class. Mr. Kistler taught me how to preach. And he preached one sermon. And he was going through all of that and thanking God. And then he said this. I'll never forget it. He said, but there has been something bothering me, though. <laughs> and I knew where he was going, guys. I knew. He said, uh, we played that football game early in the year up at Santa Fe. And he said, there were some guys in the hotel room I stayed in that night. What was turning on the television? And I was watching them already movies. Go to Larry for the back. I begin praying. Oh, God, please don't let him start naming names. Please don't let him name names. He didn't have to name a single person. None of them they all were right. Because there are all these guys who sliding down in their seat like this. Oh, Not to get woke up that he didn't see them. You know, maybe he should have called out the names. Maybe he should have embarrassed them. My point is this, Emmanuel loved Jesus with all his heart. I don't think I've ever met, no, I've met some awesome young people here. You guys want to say something to you? I commend you. My heart was stirred two years ago when I came here and I saw a commitment on the part of young people that in two years has gone up. Your commitment to the Lord is greater than it was two years ago. I commend you. I don't think I've ever met a young person anywhere on the face of the earth. That more epitomized what I want to talk to you about in these couple of minutes than Emmanuel Jones. He loved Jesus with all his heart. I want you to look at 1 Samuel 13. 
you to see something very interesting verse of scripture beginning at verse number 13. 1 Samuel 13 verse 13. The Bible says, And Samuel said unto Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Watch verse 14. But now the kingdom shall not, the kingdom, thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And if you know anything about this passage of scripture, you understand that Saul had been given a clear command by Samuel. And the, the command was, you tarry here seven days and I'll be back in seven days. Well, the seven days come and go. And Samuel hasn't shown up yet and Saul gets nervous and the people start to scatter from him and Saul does a very dangerous thing, a thing he had no really right to do. It was not his place to do. He went in and he offered a sacrifice which was not his to do because he wasn't a priest. And as he's offering the sacrifice and the smoke's ascending up off the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and he says, Saul, what are you doing? And Saul says this, he was a pragmatist. He did what he did because it was going to be beneficial to him. He said, I saw the people were scattered from me. And so I forced myself and I offered this sacrifice. And that's when Samuel says, look, God would have established your kingdom forever. Because you've disobeyed the Lord. The Lord is looking for him a man after his heart. And by the way, the Lord finds that man in the form of a young shepherd boy by the name of David. Now I want you to look over to chapter 17 of the book of 1 Samuel. Let your eyes rest on verse number 12, which says this. 1 Samuel 17, 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had, that is Jesse, had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. Now I want you to look up at me. By the way, Right after I was here two years ago, within three months of after being here, I had an opportunity for the first time in my life to go to Israel. And I actually stood in the very spot where I'm going to show you something amazing happened in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. I actually stood there, got to see where all of this would have transpired. Jesse says to David, look, I've got a project for you, son, and I'm not going to read all of it to you, but he calls David over and he says, look, I've got some food items that I want you to carry to your brothers that are fighting in Saul's army. Now, I don't know about any of you guys in here, but David was probably, as best we can tell, 16, 17, no more certainly than 18 years of age when his dad says, I want you to carry some food items to your brothers that are fighting in Saul's army. Can you, can you imagine what this would be like? His brothers are fighting. They're in battle. And David is the shepherd boy staying back home. And he gets an opportunity to carry not only some sustenance to his brothers, but I think he's thinking, man, I'm going to see a battle break out. So he is pumped. I mean, he is excited about the opportunity. So he takes the food items. He puts them, the Bible says, in a carriage. He tools down to the battlefield. And he arrives at the battlefield in a place called the Valley of Elah at a strategic moment, just as chapter 17 says, a champion of Gath by the name of Goliath steps out of the army of the Philistines. Now, I stood in the Valley of Elah. In fact, I preached in the Valley of Elah in the month of June two years ago. It'll be two years this coming June. You can see the hillside over there where the Philistines would have encamped and would have had their army. You can see the valley that stretches between that hillside and a hillside over here where the, the, the nation of Israel would have met. And there's a stream that runs through to this day the middle of the Valley of Elah. There's no water in it like there would have been in the days of David. But David arrives in that valley and out 
of the hillside where the Philistines are, walks this. Some people would say he was eight and a half feet tall to as much as nine feet two inches tall, depending on how you measure a cubit. And people would measure it different lengths. But here's a guy who's at least eight feet tall. He steps out from the camp of the Philistines and he has an armor bearer to help him carry his armor. Guys, be honest with you. Most Bible scholars believe the armor that Saul would have carried, his sword, his shield, his spear, all of this would have probably totaled up to between 150 and 200 pounds. Here's a guy with a pride that is so massive, he can go into battle and he can fight carrying that kind of weight. This is a massive man. And when he steps out of the camp of the Philistines, all of his Israel flee to their tents. Do you remember the story? And David is left standing there listening to the talk of this man who says this, Men of Israel! And I'm modernizing you a little bit. There's no need in all of us shedding blood today. In fact, there's really no need in all of us even breaking a sweat today. Here's my proposal. Put forth your best individual warrior. Let him step off his hillside down in the middle of the valley. I'll come from my side. We'll meet. We'll have hand-to-hand -hand combat. If I were to defeat him, then you guys have to be our servants. If he defeats me, then we have to be your servants. Give me a man that we may fight together. How many of you remember the story? All the men of Israel flee. David is left standing there. And he looks around and basically says, Where are all the men of Israel go? And the servant says, Well, have you not seen that dude? He must have been chiseled out of stone, rippling muscles to be able to carry that kind of weight. And the guy says, Have you not seen him? And he's been taunting us for 40 days. This same thing. Give me a man that we may fight together. And in essence, David says, well, you know, if nobody else will fight him, I'll this one. Sixteen-year-old boy, shepherd boy, he raises his hand and says, I'll do it. Now, I don't know about you. I love that. And so the servant does this. He runs over here to King Saul's tent. And in essence, he says, King, evidently there's one born every second because we've got to take her to the big dude after 40 days. And if you read chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, Saul says, bring me. This seasoned warrior, I want to see him. So they go to retrieve David and bring him to King Saul's tent. Again, I'm jumping over a lot of things for the sake of time. Do you know how 1 Samuel 17 describes David as he enters Saul's tent? The Bible says he was with all ready. Where ready means red. By the way, I used to read that and wrote some teacher. I thought, you know, he had maybe, you know, red complexion, you know, red skin tone. Nathan used to have this when he was a little boy. He had the reddest, rosiest cheeks. And I thought, you know, David had red, rosy cheeks. The Bible doesn't say he just had red, rosy cheeks. The Bible indicates he was with all, which means all over he was red. That means he may have had red skin tone, may have had red hair like my brother right here. Amen. Which would make him look distinctly different than all the other young men in Israel at that time would have had dark complexion, dark hair, dark he was with all ruddy, red, and listen to what else it says, and of a fair countenance. Fair countenance in Hebrew means this. He hadn't begun to shave yet. So here is a perhaps red-headed, red skin tone, peach-fuzzed face kid. And he's escorted into King Saul's tent. King, here's a man's going to take down the big dude. And you know what King Saul says? He says what everybody else has been thinking. He says, Son, thou art not able to fight him, for thou art but a youth. And son, he is a man of war from his youth. You don't stand a chance. To which David responds, King, I don't think you understand my God. I'm a shepherd, 
And I've been tending to my dad's sheep. And on two occasions, wild animals came out against my dad's flock. One time it was a lion. Another time it was a bear. And by the way, I love the bear one best because he says with respect to the bear, a bear wandered into the camp where I had the sheep bedded down for the night. And the bear took one of the sheep. And David said, I had to chase the bear and deliver, is the word he used, extract a sheep out of its mouth. Get a mental picture of this. David's got the sheep bedded down for the night. The bear wanders in and carries one off. David didn't say, well, you know, forget him up. He said, no, what do you think you're doing? You'll come back here. And he chases the bear down, opens the bear's mouth, extracts the sheep, kills the bear. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I like that kind of guy, don't you? You're not going to take anything from me. And by the way, guys, you shouldn't let the world take anything or the devil take anything from you. He, I don't think you understand. I fought a lion and I fought a bear. And King, if you'll just let me, Big mouth guy standing over there on that hillside, he'll be just like one of them. Turn me loose. By the way, I pray God will turn us loose in the city center today, and we'll be bold for our Savior. Amen. Turn me loose, King. If you remember the story, King Saul says, Well, son, you're going to need some protection. I mean, this guy's got 200 perhaps pounds of armor, shield, spear, sword. You're going to need something to protect yourself. He says, I'll bring my armor. Put it on David. You remember? And the armor in both state. In fact, he could have moved all his family into the armor with it. But the right, there's so much room. I mean, the reason I know this is the Bible says that this time from his shoulders upward, Saul was taller than all the other men of Israel. David has now Saul's armor on. He can almost turn around inside of it. And he looks at the king and says, King, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I can't fight in this. And the phrase he uses is this. I've never proved it. I've never waged warfare. One time wearing this. Get it off of me. And Saul says, well, somebody going to fight with And David holds up a very interesting weapon. It's called a sling. Now, any of you ever shot a slingshot? We used to make those growing up as a boy in the States. My dad would cut down a limb off of a dogwood tree. And he would have a you know, place here big enough for a young boy to put his hand around. There'd be two branches going this way. And he would take those two branches and he had military issue strength. Very strong strength, Ryan. You've seen some of that because you served in the Marine Corps. But he'd take that military issue strength and the Y of the branches going off the bigger branch this way, he'd pull them in together to where they weren't like this. They were about like this, like a U. And he would take it and string it up like that and stick that branch into an oven and heat it at about 400 degrees for about two hours. And then you take it out and you take the string off. It doesn't snap back into the Y. It stays like this. And then he would put very heavy-duty rubber on each side, string it up, and then the rubber straps would come out this way. He'd cut a tongue out of a shoe to make a pouch. And then he said, boys, we'll have fun. And we'd go shoot rocks out of a slingshot. They were awesome devices. That is not what they advance. He has two strips of leather here, a pouch down here. You hold the two strips of leather up here between these two fingers and your thumb. And by the way, uh, we were just in Israel and I saw these things. And by the way, Brian, if you know what you're doing with one of these, you can be deadly. I mean, absolutely deadly your target if you don't know what you're doing. And trust me, I tried and I didn't. And thank God my hair covers up the welts I've got on my head. All right? You know what you're doing. You can kill yourself. <laughs> trust me, David knew what he was doing. King, I'm going to take him on with this and a stone. And by the way, I don't mean a penalty. 
fact, I walked down into the valley of Eli. There's no water again running through it, but there are stones still in the bed of what used to be that stream. And yes, Brother Brian, I did reach down and I got myself just like David, five smooth stones. And I put them in my pocket and I got them through security and got them back to America. And I lined up on my desk right now in my study. David said, King, I'm going to take him over this and a stone. By the way, those rocks, as a general rule, are about two and a half inches in size. That is length. They are incredibly smooth. So when the rock hits Goliath, this is not a little pebble. This is a significant size rock. King, I'm going to take him on with this and a rock. To which King Saul says this, and I love it. The phrase he uses, 1 Samuel 17, is, Go, and the Lord be with me. By the way, Brother Brian, he wouldn't have said it though like that because he's king. He would have said it, you know, in that low, guttural, Darth Vader voice. Darth Vader? Go. <laughs> Can you hear it? Because I can. The Lord be with thee. I love that, Brian. The Lord. somebody pray that way? Oh, Lord. I mean, they don't talk that way normally, but they pray that way. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Every time somebody does it, I take my right hand and put it on my wallet and hold on to it. There's weird about that. Just talk to God like you talk to regular people. Amen. Yeah, Think, well, you know, that's a blessing. Because King Saul is wishing David well. He's praying a blessing on him. Can I tell you that's not what he's doing? What King Saul is saying is this if you're going to fight that with that, you're going to have to have God with you. Because, man, we're out of here. Go and the Lord be with you. Brother J. David, with that little bit of encouragement, Steps out of King Saul's tent. Walks down into the middle of the valley. And I stood right there. You can imagine, where would he have stopped to pick up those smooth stones out of the brook? Figure out where I think he may have done it. And then he smooths, takes those smooth stones, pouches four of them, and puts one into his sling, tightens up and advances toward an 8.5 to 9.2 foot tall giant. When Goliath sees him coming, and by the way, people are going to see us coming into the city center today. And they're going to try to be intimidating, I'm sure. Goliath tries to intimidate David. He sees him coming, and the Bible says Goliath looks at him and says, What am I? Am I a, am I a dog that you're coming to me with rocks and sticks? And then he says this, Son, I'm going to feed your carcass to the fowls of heaven. And what I love about it is this. David says, Excuse me, sir, you got it backwards. I'm going to feed your carcass to the thousand of heaven today, and all the earth is going to know there's a God in heaven. I'll hear an Sir, you got it backwards. When David says that to, to the giant, Goliath, Goliath looks down at him and he says a very interesting thing. Now, hear me out. I'm not trying to be gross here. The Bible says Goliath cursed his David, which, by the way, means he called down curses. Literally, I'm going to feed your carcass to the fowls of heaven today. And Goliath looks at him and calls down curses. It means he says, you blankety blank. That's literally what he does. But before he does that, the Bible says he disdained David. Disdained him. 
When we talk about disdain in our world, we normally think of it as having an attitude of disdain. Somebody has an attitude. The word disdain in the Bible is not an attitude word, it's an action word. What the life is doing to David is he's putting David down with his words. The word disdain means to minimize, to make small, to render insignificant. In other words, he does this. He looks at this little guy, the Bible says exactly what he says. He says, you will piss me. Who do you think you are? Look at your little spaghetti thin arms. Look at my muscles that would make Arnold Schwarzenegger drool within me. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a blankety blank. Everybody with me? Yeah. You know David doesn't pay any attention to anything. He just tightens the rock up and steps forward. He takes the sling up over his head, and just like every trained sling thrower knew how to do in those days. He started rotating like this, and at just the right RPMs, just the right revolutions per minute, God says, okay, now, and he releases the index finger, which is how they would do it. Releasing one of the strips of leather, holding on to the other one between his second finger and his thumb. And when he releases that one strand, it hurls that two and a half inch rock in the direction of Goliath. And the Bible says it hits him right here. Sinks into his forehead. And Goliath collapses to the ground. In fact, he must have done this. He must have teetered a little bit. And thought, man, what was that? And then forward he falls with his face to the ground. The Bible says David does not have a sword. In fact, I want you to watch this. Look at chapter 17. Look, let your eyes rest, if you would, please, on verse number 51. The Bible says, Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof, and slew him, and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they did what? <laughs> Fled. Watch verse number 52. And the men of Israel and of Judah, I love this, arose. They've been hiding in their tents. They come out of their tents and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou come to the valley of the gates uh, unto the valley and the gates of Ekron, and the wounded of the Philistine fell down by the way to Sharaim, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. And by the way, if you do a study of that, and I looked it up this morning, from the valley of Elah to Ekron is about 15 to 20 miles. And they chased the Philistines 15 to 20 miles, and the dead of the Philistines are falling down by the way. Now, won't you look at that for a minute? A man after God's own heart. A woman after God's own heart. He's someone like David. I don't have time to go back and read it, but I want to tell you this. When David arrives at the battlefield and he listens to Goliath taunting Israel, and he says to the servant, what shall be done to the individual who shuts the mouth of this guy because he's defying the armies of our God and he's defying our God. And the servant says, if we could find a man to take him down, his house would be enriched in Israel. He would have a gold chain put around his neck. And the king has a daughter who I believe would probably give, be given to the man that's willing to do that. And David volunteers to fight Goliath. David's older brother Eliab hears the conversation. I want you to watch what Eliab says to David. Look at chapter 17 and verse number 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? Why did you even come here? 
And with whom hast thou left, left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. You're here for no other reason, David, than just to watch a fight. And I want you to watch David's answer in verse 29. And David said, what have I now done? Eliab, what have I done that's wrong? Is there not a cause? What David is saying is this, brother, I love you. But I'm here to tell you, you've done nothing to stop the mouth of this guy for the last 40 days. What have I done by wanting to take him on? Is there not a cause worth fighting for? Do you understand men and women after the heart of God are men and women with a cause? Let me ask you, what is your cause? David's cause was not himself. David's cause was not his own comfort. David's cause was not his own agenda. In fact, we got off the van this morning. We were talking about the modern day culture. And guys, I love you. You guys are the exception to the rule. But I'll tell you what, you know this well as I do. Most of contemporary youth, it's all about them, right? What can I get out of this? How can I be advanced and be better? Because how can my life be more comfortable because of my choices? David wasn't about himself or his agenda. His cause was defending the reputation and the honor of the God of heaven. Is there not a cause? Young people that are people after the heart of God, people with a cause. Number two, they're also this, they're people of courage. I love David's answer to King Saul. King, I don't think you understand. I fought a lion, I fought a bear. And if you'll let me, God will use me to take down that guy standing over there as well. Incredible courage based on his past victories. And God used him in a great way. Number three, more important than any of that is this. Young men and young women that are people after the heart of God, like David, are not only people with a cause and courage. Number three, they're people who command the respect of others. Brother Brian, I love this. Not only does he command the respect of the Philistines who flee, but he commands the respect of his own people who come out of their tents and they pursue the Philistines when they've been cowering, hiding out, fearful of what was going to take place, scared out of their minds, and yet God uses David to spur them on. Can I say this, guys? Every one of you in this room have people watching there are people at this conference that are watching. Jay, people watch you. They watch you. Every one of us in this room have people watching us. Our choices don't just affect us. They affect everyone around us. I will never forget years ago my grandfather telling me this. He said he used to sell insurance. His boss called him aside one day and said, Mr. George, can I talk to you? My grandfather said, of course. And the boss said this, it has nothing to do with business. It has to do with this. He said, my 11-year-old son, and by the way, I remember that little boy. Growing up as a, as a little boy, we'd go spend a couple of weeks every summer with my grandfather. He'd take us with, us, with him when he would go and work his insurance route. And I remember that little 11-year-old boy. And the boss told my granddad, my 11-year-old son thinks that every morning when the sun rises, it rises because you put it in the sky, Mr. George. He thinks you are the greatest thing in the world. 
My grandfather said, well, I appreciate the fact that he likes me. He said, oh no, it's way beyond life. He thinks, literally, you're the greatest thing he's ever seen. My grandfather had a keen sense of humor. He could make people laugh. He just loved people. This little boy loved my granddad. And the boss said this, Mr. George, can I say something to you? Please don't ever do anything to disappoint my son. Please don't ever do anything. The choices you make, the language you use, the attitudes you have, Please understand, my son is watching. By the way, my granddad loved the Lord with all of his heart. He was a perfect man, but he sure was dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. To my knowledge, not only in front of that little boy, but in front of anyone here, did anything to disgrace the Lord. But people are watching. And the choices we make, and the lifestyle we live, affects everybody around us. What we need to do is be people after the very heart of the God of heaven. Cause, courage, and those that command respect. A good portion of my life and ministry now is spent in somehow related to or time spent actually in the city of Washington, D.C. Can I tell you this? Those people that serve in Congress are high-powered people. Nathan works with them literally every single week. He now works in an office up on Capitol Hill, and he knows they're high-powered people. Can I tell you this? They watch everything you do. They watch every attitude you possess. And Rob Shank, a dear friend of Nathan's and mine, said, Dave, when you come here and you bring pastors here, do you know that the people on Capitol Hill will talk for weeks after you're gone and say, look at those guys in the suits and ties. Why are they here? He says, I tell them, they're pastors, they're preachers from across America. And he said, Dave, you don't ever, can never overestimate the impact of your presence on Capitol Hill because they're by the way, I hope you watch American television. I'll not mention the guy's name, but if you watch any American television and follow any of the political scene, you have seen this guy. In fact, several uh, several uh, months back, in fact, it's been a good number of months back, Ryan, I was in D.C. for something totally unrelated, and uh, I called one of my congressman friends who at that time was still serving uh, from the state of Georgia, and I said, Paul, where are you? And he said, well, he said, I'm getting ready to go over to the floor of the House. I've got to cast a vote. And I said, well, uh, can we meet for lunch? He said, where are you? I said, I'm out in front of the United States Capitol building. He said, which side? I said, the House of Representatives side. He said, give me about five minutes to cast my ballot, and I'll meet you out front. So he comes out front, and he said, where do you want to go eat? And I said, well, it's up to you. He said, well, we've got three choices. He said, we can go off the hill to a place called Bullfeathers. That's the name of the restaurant. He said, it's kind of a local watering hole. A lot of congressmen eat there. He said, or we can eat in the Capitol Visitor Center. He said, that's a little bit expensive. I said, yes, I know. I've eaten there before. He said, or our third option is this. We can eat in the house members' dining room. I said, well, uh, how, you know, I said, uh, how close is that? Well, I'm standing right in front of the house members. So I don't have any clothes. He said, well, it's right there. We just go through the door and we're in. I said, well, I've never eaten there. How about we eat there? He said, that's good. And so he uh, took us up the steps. And because he's got a little pin on his lapel that identifies him as a United States congressman, we didn't have to go through any kind of security. Normally, to get into that building, you have to go through the airport-style security. Take your shoes off, your belt off. Everything goes into a little tray, and they x-ray all of it, and they x-ray. We didn't have to go through any of that. We're following this guy in just because he's got this thing on his lapel. And we go in to the House of Representatives side of the U.S. Capitol building. We go into a restaurant, Brian. 
We ate the greatest fried chicken in my life. And they served in the house members' dining room. Beautiful paintings on the wall. I mean, an all dust room, beautiful room. When we finished our fried chicken, my buddy, Paul Brown, looked at me and said, Now, Dave, you're in the building, okay? You have the run of the place. He said, Please don't do anything to embarrass me. And I said, Well, I don't intend to. And he said, I know you won't. But he said, Seriously, Dave, you can go anywhere the building you want to go. I said, My question is this how do I get down to the house chamber itself? Because we were up on the second floor. He said, When you go here to the left, you go this, make a right, go down a set of fl uh, flight stairs. And when you come out, if you make another left, right there is the entrance to the house chamber. He said, What do you want to do? I said, Well, I've actually been in the Senate chamber. I've actually been in prayer in the U.S. Senate chamber. Never been in the house chamber. I'd like to go in. He said, Well, that's how you get there. Well, I've got four other people with me, so Paul needs to go do something. He said, I'll meet you in an hour. And so, uh, Brian, we make our way through, you know, the pathways and down the steps. And sure enough, make left hand turn. Right there is the house chamber. People going in, coming out, going in, coming out. And so, uh, I got my suit on, and, and I walk in this right suit, because that's the official attire of those in Washington, D.C. I walked into the chamber, and there's a big burly guy standing there. I mean, big old muscled up guy. And they call him the sergeant of arms. And he's the guy that's supposed to keep people that aren't supposed to be in the chamber from coming in. And I stepped in, and he said, Sir, this is as far as you can go. And he's looking at my lapel, and I don't have that pen. I said, Yes, I'm aware of that. I just want to step in and look around. He said, Well, that's fine, but this is as far as you can go. And when he said that, I said, I think I looked around enough. And so I exited <laughs> and stood outside. And watch as people went in, came out. And the way they do this, they'll go in and they'll cast their ballot on whatever it is they're voting on. They'll come out and go back to their office. <laughs> well, a guy walks in, who's a neighbor again, I'm not going to mention, comes out and comes right by me as close as I am to you. By the way, I am praying for this guy. That God would give me an opportunity to share Christ with He walked by me, I grabbed his arm, and I said, Stop, stop for just a second. I said, My name's Dave Kistler. And I'm an evangelist with Hope Ministries International. And this man who's been all over television, his face is seen weakly. He didn't hear another word I said after the word evangelist. He said, so you're an evangelist. I said, I am. He looked at me and he said, well, my mom and dad were both preachers. That's what he said. My mom and dad were both preachers. And uh, I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, tell me about that. I want to know a little bit about your upbringing. We took about 20 minutes and he shared with me his entire life. And then I said, Congressman, can I share something with you? Sure. And I went into a brief explanation of the gospel. Then he looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Dave, can I implore you to do something? I said, sure, Congressman. He said, keep coming here. Keep doing what you're doing. He said, because this city and this hill, called it Capitol Hill, needs I said, well, Congressman, I'm going to put that coupon on one of these days. I'm going to show up at your office. We're going to continue our conversation because you've implored me to do that. I intend to keep doing what I'm doing and keep trying to have an impact for the glory of God. You know, people listen to me. I'm never fully understood until that day how somebody from North Carolina can show up in the most powerful city, some people say, in the world. The most political city in the world, for sure. Washington, D.C., and have an impact for the glory of God. People are watching. I don't know about you guys, but more than anything, more than the life itself, more than the next breath I take, only a man that can come. Father, I pray that you speak to us today. 
Lord, we live in a very wicked world. A world that's consumed with self-absorbed, selfish motivations. And yet, Lord, the Bible gives us a very vivid account, 1 Samuel 17, of a young man named David. He was younger than most of us in this room. He was a teenager. And yet, Lord, he had a heart after your very heart. And Lord, you took that young shepherd boy and you used him, Lord, later as the king of the nation of Israel. He became a warrior king. And Lord, you used him for the cause of righteousness in ways I'm sure at this encounter with Goliath and leading up to this encounter. David never imagined he would be used as you were using him, but Lord, you chose to do that. And Father, I pray for myself, Lord, first, and I pray for these dear young people, that Lord, in this year, 2017, a phenomenal year of opportunity, Lord, I pray we would be men and women after the very heart of God. Lord, may we be people who have a cause that's bigger than just us and our agenda and our comfort. Lord, may we be people of courage even today. Father, I pray you would open our mouths and loose our tongues and help us to be kind, help us to be gracious, help us to be very, very winsome. But Lord, help us to speak truth courageously today as we pass out gospel tracts. Lord, whoever will do the preaching, Father, I pray you would help them to be courageous, loving but courageous. And Father, I pray the singing would be joyful and courageous. May we be people of courage as was David. And Father, I would pray above all things because it's so desperately needed in our day that we would be men and women who command the respect not only of a lost world, the enemies of the gospel, but Lord, even those that are our friends who themselves are very fearful and will not step up. Lord, because we step up and are men and women after your heart, Lord, may it do as David did and motivated in his day his own nation to step up and to step out for you. Father, use us in that fashion, I pray. And Father, for what you do, we'll thank you and give you great glory. And young people, this is as far as I'm going to go today, though I could say a lot more and do a little different approach, but this is as far as I'm going to go. There's phenomenal potential in this room. I told my wife last night, I said, honey, you should have been there. I've never seen such great young people. We laugh till we hurt. I watched young men tell stories some of which was made up on the spur of the moment. But it reflected incredible giftedness. Guys, God's given you a wonderful opportunity to be men and women after His heart. Now, could I ask you this? If you have your heads bowed, and I would implore your eyes closed. I've prayed something this year because in my country in America, I believe it's going to be the case. I'll not go into all the reasons why I believe this to be so. But I think 2017 in my nation is going to be the most pivotal year in my 57 years on this earth, the most important year. And I've asked the Lord for several things, one of which is this, Lord, I want to be in the year 2017 a man who has a heart after you. I want to be more courageous than I've ever been. I want my cause to be your cause. 
I want to defend the integrity, the reputation of my God, and I want to declare His gospel in a fearless way. Lord, above and beyond all things, I want you to use me to command the respect of the enemies of the cross as well as the friends of the cross. Do you want to be that kind of man and that kind of woman? If you do, could I ask you, would you be willing to do this this morning? Would you be willing just to make the seat that you're currently seated in your altar? Would you be willing just to slip out of your seat and kneel in front of your chair and say, oh God, I get this. And I want to be in this year, 2017, a man, a woman, after the very heart of God. If that's what you want and what you desire, would you be willing just to slip out of your seat? God bless you guys. I love it when strong men and wonderful young ladies have a heart that's tender to the things of God. I want to be a person after your very heart. Just make your chair your altar. You can slip around and kneel there and say, Oh God, I get it. I want to be in 2017 what David was in his day. A man, a woman after the very heart of God. Father, I pray for these, my dear friends, your children, who are kneeling, Lord, before you today, asking you, O oh God, to make them in this year a man or a woman after your heart. Father, again, I pray for myself because that's what I really want to be. Give both Nathan and I incredible courage, Lord, because there'll be things upcoming, things that we will face where the very enemies of righteousness will be there. And Father, I pray you'd help us, O oh God, to be gracious, to be winsome, Lord, to represent you well, but may we be men of courage and conviction. Our cause being what you want done. And Father, as a result, I believe you would command the respect of a lost world and even the Christian community. And Father, we'll give you glory and praise. I would ask the same thing, Lord, for these young people, even, Lord, as we prepare in just a little while to go into the city in about an hour. Father, make us, I pray, courageous witnesses for you. And Father, I pray that we'd have the opportunity to share the gospel in printed page as well as verbally with many. Father, I thank you that two years ago, I was able to converse for about 40 minutes with a young Muslim man. And Lord, I was able to answer some of his questions. And Father, I pray, Lord, I don't know what's happened to him in the two years that have transpired. Father, I pray you'd continue to work in his heart and draw him to you. Give us an opportunity, O oh God, to speak with others in like fashion this day. And Father, we'll praise your name for all you do. Bless the remainder of the conference and all that will take place this day and tomorrow. And Lord, send these young people back to their respective homes, their respective churches, their respective jobs or university classes. Father, send them back changed people. And Father, we'll thank you for what you do. We love you, Lord Jesus, and give you glory. For it's in your name that we do pray and ask these things. 